long ago the moon climbed down when they came. With aloes and spices they came. What are surnameable loves to me? The moon that rolls like the stone to the tomb, if eyes look to see, rolls it open at dawn. They came with aloes and spices they came. He is risen, he is not here. Oh, say, is that you, or only a pillar of sun? My father, in common with a lot of people of his time, was a great teller of stories to children. I don't mean that he was a great storyteller, but simply was a great man to spin a yarn to a child. He told me that he told me that the sun danced in the sky on Easter morning. I believed him firmly, and it was only after a few years of getting up at the crack of dawn to see this glory that I gave it up. But still, when I think of Easter, the dancing sun is the first thing that comes to my mind. In my very young years, Christmas was the great feast of the year. I suppose it's entirely natural that young children should be drawn to Christmas. Apart from Santa Claus and presents, the baby is such an attractive picture, and especially the most beautiful and glorious baby that ever was. It takes a bit of maturity to envisage blood, sweat and tears and an empty tomb at the end of it. When this maturity came, Easter became for me a feast far beyond Christmas, even though in material terms the Easter eggs fell a long way short behind the doll and pram. For one thing, there was never the uneasy guilt of being too well fed and having presents when you felt that far too many were not in the same happy boat. The lead-up to it was so much more dramatic too. There was the long, virtuous period of daily mass, giving up sweets and trying to avoid snarling under your breath at your mother when she asked you to go to the shop. All this culminating in a week of rather pleasurable wallowing in the contemplation of the actual passion of Christ. The highlight was a sermon on Good Friday in the local Jesuit church. I still remember in sharp detail walking to the church down a rather squalid shortcut between walled backyards of small houses. A shortcut flanked by rubbish bins and debris, but never sordidly squalid, because the sun was always shining and the air clear and sharp. The contrast of walking into a darkened church from this brilliant light heightened the melancholy. The Jesuits were good stage managers. All the windows were darkened and the statues were, as usual, shrouded in purple, the altar bare and the tabernacle open and empty. And there was an enormous crucifix at the back of the sanctuary. The priest preached from a high pulpit and he worked slowly up to a climax until no stops were unpulled. You went out of this rather rather stunned by histrionics and full of fervour and contrition. Easter Saturday was a rather strange, happy no-man's-land between the gloom of Good Friday and the bright blaze of Easter Sunday. We dyed eggs. The yellow ones were dyed with the flowers of furs, the red with cochineal, and the green with a formidable green dye, also used for St. Patrick's Day cakes. Easter Sunday was great. The altar brilliant with flowers and white vestments, the Easter candle studded with mysterious knobs, And then after breakfast, a feed of chocolate eggs. No chocolate ever tasted as good. It was worth the long abstinence. One of the nicest Easter Sundays of my life was spent in Paris many years ago. 
a friend and myself were advised to go to a small church at the back of Notre Dame called St. Julien Le Pauvre. It was the Eastern Rite in communion with Rome. The priest was dressed like and indeed looked the image of Archbishop Macarius. When we went into the church, we were directed to purchase a candle, which was to be lighted at the beginning of the Gospel. The Gospel was read in about seven languages. It was so exciting to hear it read in a cool Oxford accent. If we had heard it in a cool Galway accent, I suppose we'd have jumped out of our skins. During the consecration, curtains were drawn about the altar. Communion was in both species. This to us was absolutely stunning. The consecrated bread, and it was bread, not a white host, was dipped in the chalice and given to the communicant. This was too much for our Irish upbringing, and we were unable to go to the altar. After Mass, there was a procession through the church led by the priest to a carried crucifix, topped with a huge bunch of red roses. The choir was wonderful, straight out of Ivan the Terrible. After Mass, blessed bread was distributed to the congregation. We then went off elated to drink wine at a roadside cafe. I approve far more of the present Easter rites. They are simple, and for me, the beauty and truth of the Gospels come over loud and clear. But still, perhaps the child hankers after the play acting and the dancing song.
as children, we all believed that the sun danced on Easter Sunday morning. We weren't alone in this belief because accounts tell us that grown people all over Europe had the same belief. And early on Easter Sunday morning, they got up in the lowlands of Holland and climbed up on the roofs of houses so that they could have a first glimpse of the sun coming up over the horizon. Where there were hills, as in Germany, people climbed the hills so as to see the sun peeping up far away. And as they looked, they saw, as they thought, the sun dancing. Now, scientists are never satisfied with that kind of superstition. It is a superstition, a belief. And research was done into it by a Finnish lady, friend of mine, a professor who is now dead, who found that this was a phenomenon which happened really all during spring, that when the sun came up over the horizon, it heated the cold earth and the air immediately above it, and this heated air started to rise up and colder air started to fall to take its place. And when the sun at the horizon shone through this shimmering air, rising and falling, it gave the sun the appearance of dancing. So that is the scientific explanation of it, and as I say, it happened all during spring, and not only on Easter Sunday morning. Now, Easter itself, of course, is, our Christian Easter, is based on an earlier pre-Christian festival. It was a spring festival, the festival of the renewal of growth in nature. People were delighted that, again, uh, things began to burgeon, and they celebrated this in various ways. One of the ways was by the eating of eggs, curiously enough. Now, what has the egg to do with the renewal of nature? Well, it was a common belief, and I think generally acknowledged, that life first came out of an egg of some kind, not a bird's egg, it might be the egg of a fish or anything at all, and that the egg itself uh, was a kind of cosmos of nature, the shell being the earth, the white inside the egg being water, the yolk being fire, and the air that was between the shell and the white would be the air. So you had the four elements there. It was a symbol of life. And therefore, people felt that if they ate eggs on Easter Sunday morning, they were coming to a renewal of life. I have said that Easter was a pre-Christian festival. But when Christianity came, this festival was, as it were, christened. And uh, talking about christening reminds us naturally of water, uh, Easter being a great time for christening. And in the pre-Christian days, it was common in Central Europe that people went to rivers on that festival, took out some of the water, which they called Osservasser, Easter water. They didn't use it specifically for christening, but they used it for medicinal purposes. As well as this connection of water with Easter, there was a connection with fire in pre-Christian times because it was quite common in Europe 
that people lit special fires, Easter fires, at this time of year in order to celebrate the spring festival and the renewal of growth. It will possibly be strange to many people that fire should be in any way connected with growth. But uh, we cannot always understand the minds of our early ancestors, but if we look around Irish custom and folk belief, we find fire very often connected with the growth of crops. We all know that during the Midsummer Festival, the 23rd of June, bonfires were lighted regularly all over the country by the country people, and one of the customs which I remember very well in Kerry myself was that having lighted the bonfire, as every farm, farming family did on the eve of St. John's Feast, we took a bush, a blazing bush, out of the bonfire, took it off to the potato garden especially, and threw it over the fence in onto the, the edge of the crop. This was, I suppose, to protect the crop from any evil influence and to promote its growth. Now, this was widespread indeed all over the world. Sir James Fraser has written a great deal about it in his famous book, The Golden Bough. The Druids had their own fires, of course, in Ireland. We have read about those in early Irish literature. And they continued with their pagan fires, shall we call them, until a certain man came into the country and he lit another fire. On that Saturday evening, 1,500 years ago, as he passed up the Boyne Valley towards Slane, Patrick was moving, whether he knew it or not, over 4,000 years of pagan history. For under his feet was one of the largest and one of the most ancient burial grounds of pagan Ireland, possibly a vast pagan sanctuary as well. Under Patrick's feet, in the dark stone passages of Douth, Nowth and Newgrange, the ashes of the dead had been laid for centuries in stone vessels and urns. And on the rock men had carved spirals and circles and zigzag lines, all of them sacred or magical signs to watch over the departed. Uncertain and touching efforts to reach out after them, though holding no further promise in themselves. But in the Christian calendar, as Patrick passed over the graves of pagan Ireland, the body of Christ also lay in the tomb. On Easter Saturday evening, Patrick lit his fire, and with the dawn of Easter Sunday, when he went over to Tara, Ireland rose from its tomb with Christ. This was Ireland's first Christian Easter. This was our baptism and our resurrection as a people. Yeah.
Taunach Kauska, Mora Neure, Bunnel Tischle Dimse, Hittes Feuer in Stachse Chorp, is derling Kies das Meinting Schere Stachse Wiebler. De Much of Nasilche hießen Scha, Don Lan of Wehe de Hirse Chorp. Is auch Gachsmuinov hießen Scha, Tadine T. Ischel Stigse Chorp. Ta munka him himpul getunskeluch a pickin the miele da chelen sha. Nel vede der vilin ardid krav is slugged gan vile sheer marioch. Oskel rome fadder tan laver dunta meadan is kordod christ gemeiden nishtiger fudna mete. Daunach kaska moran tahas, deal har nashum minting, doskel padder roman laver. Is Lanus Lorog Christ and the Horse Tree the Mibla? Friday and Saturday of this weekend, I have been celebrating the Passover, which is one of the Jewish festivals and the one which commemorates the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. Um, It is, as all such festivals are, uh, a thing which impresses itself a lot on children and indeed the principal event of the Passover, which is the festive meal, which is eaten on the first and second nights, is especially arranged to interest and attract the attention of children. And so it's something of which you have very sort of warm childhood recollections. However, it is, I think, of all the Jewish festivals, for me anyway, uh, the one 
of which the significance remains freshest even when you become an adult. It is, um, the meal itself is a fairly fairly long affair and very much a family affair. Um, Several families will celebrate it together in a house. Usually you try to go to your parents' home or if you can't, you're with an uncle or an aunt or a cousin. There is a recital for about half an hour or so in Hebrew of the history of the children of Israel in Egypt and you then eat the meal and then you end up with some more of the history, some psalms and it ends up actually with folk songs and almost children's songs in a mood of tremendous hilarity. Um, When you become an adult, you see something else in it beyond uh, the family enjoyment and the excitement of the event and the songs and so forth. I see in it an extraordinary sense of continuity and history. Uh, There is in itself the extraordinary phenomenon of celebrating something which happened about, I suppose, three and a half thousand years ago. And even the ceremony itself, the Passover feast, uh, reached its final shape about 2,000 years ago and is the same as was said by Jews in the Holy Land at that period. Um, So much of the recital of the story is concerned with oppression and slavery and the sufferings of the children of Israel in Egypt that every time it comes around you always think of the areas of the world in which this is true of Jews even at the moment. I suppose in the 30s and 40s people thought of Central Europe. Certainly at the moment one thinks of Soviet Russia, where Jews are not free to perform the rights as they should be performed, and where they are not free either to leave, as indeed the children of Israel were not free in Egypt. Um, These resemblances can sometimes take extraordinary shape. I remember um, the only occasion which I ever celebrated the Passover in Israel, I was staying at a residential school for Hebrew students and there were people from maybe 40 or 50 different countries there and on the afternoon on which the Passover was to commence, I was in a room with a friend of mine and we shared the first of the unleavened um, bread, which is a feature of the Passover now this fellow, his ancestors had been expelled from, from Spain at the time of the Inquisition and had settled in Alexandria and only a short while before then he himself had escaped from Egypt and settled in Israel. Now um, the resemblances of course between the Egypt of 1964 and the Egypt of Pharaoh are extremely superficial. However they were so similar in some respects after the space of three and a half thousand years that it was a shock to realise how fresh the same events are in that sense. Um, It is a period, so, for tremendous family closeness, for celebrating 
I suppose, the survival of the tradition to which one belongs. It also has another perspective which I find particularly attractive because in any celebration, whether religious or a secular celebration of your survival, of your triumph over your enemies, there is always inclined to be an element of flag-waving about it. And the thing I like about the Passover is the tremendous sympathy involved for the other side. You see, during the Passover, towards the end of the week, there comes a day which is traditionally regarded as the anniversary of the escape of the children of Israel from the Egyptian uh, army which was pursuing them across the Red Sea. And as the story goes, of course, uh, the Lord flooded the Egyptians and uh, destroyed them in the waves of the Red Sea. And when that when that anniversary arrives, there are certain prayers changed in the liturgy of the synagogue. The same changes as occur on other anniversaries in the course of the year where sadness is involved and where it would be unseemly for these prayers to be said because so many people suffered on that day. And the explanation for this is in an old folk tale. It's an old Jewish folk tale about the exodus from Egypt. And as the story goes, the angels were observing this, as it were, from the sidelines in heaven. And every time that the Lord produced a master stroke, they cheered throughout the ten plagues and so forth. And the great climax arrived when the children of Israel were able to walk across the Red Sea and their enemies arrived and were flooded under the waves. And this was the biggest cheer of all. And the angels then um, decided to go to the throne room of the Lord to offer their praises for his salvation of his children of Israel. And they thought they would find him in a very exultant frame of mind, in place of which he was very sad and actually weeping. They said, how come, O Lord, when your children are saved from slavery that you should you should um, weep? And he said, I have to weep because my children are drowned in the sea. Shaka, the 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 shaka,
On the tenth day of this month, each man must take an animal from the flock, one for each family, one animal for each household. If the household is too small to eat the animal, a man must join with his neighbor the nearest to his house as the number of persons requires. You must take into account what each can eat in deciding the number for the animal. It must be an animal without blemish, a male one year old. You may take it from either sheep or goats. You must keep it till the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the community of Israel shall slaughter it between the two evenings. Some of the blood must then be taken and put on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where it is eaten. That night the flesh is to be eaten, roasted over the fire. It must be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You shall eat it like this, with a girdle round your waist, sandals on your feet, a staff in your hand. You shall eat it hastily. It is a Passover in honor of the Lord. That night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast alike. And I shall deal out punishment to all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood shall serve to mark the house that you live in. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and you shall escape the destroying plague when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a day of remembrance for you, and you must celebrate it as a feast in the Lord's honor. For all generations you are to declare it a day of festival forever. That very same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking together about all that had happened. 
Now, as they talked this over, Jesus himself came up and walked by their side. But something prevented them from recognizing him. He said to them, What matters are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped short, their faces downcast. Then one of them, called Cleopas, answered him, You must be the only person staying in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been happening here these last few days. What things, he asked. All about Jesus of Nazareth, they answered, who proved he was a great prophet by the things he said and did in the sight of God and of the whole people, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and had him crucified. Our own hope had been that he would be the one to set Israel free. And this is not all. Two whole days have gone by since it all happened, and some women from our group have astounded us. They went to the tomb in the early morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back to tell us they had seen a vision of angels who declared he was alive. Some of our friends went to the tomb and found everything exactly as the women had reported but of him they saw nothing. Then he said to them, You foolish men, so slow to believe the full message of the prophets. Was it not ordained that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory? Then, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he explained to them the passages throughout the scriptures that were about himself. When they drew near to the village to which they were going, he made as if to go on, but they pressed him to stay with them. It's nearly evening, they said, and the day is almost over. So he went in with them to stay. Now while he was with them at table, he took the bread and said the blessing. Then he broke it and handed it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he had vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? languages and in different schools of theological thinking, people are saying and celebrating today the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. And however they might differ in what they actually mean by this, they are at one in what must be one of the oldest creeds of all, Jesus is risen. But I think for me the first important thing about the assertion Jesus is risen is that when a person says that he, that, he is expressing his involvement in something, actually his involvement in the person Jesus of Nazareth, his words, his work, his death. Jesus of Nazareth, who was executed by the Roman authorities in first century Palestine, but who is still impinging and alive. In other words, when we emphasize the present implications of the sentence, Jesus is risen, the question about how we are to think of this rising as having actu actually originally taken place 
becomes less important. I seem to detect in the New Testament itself more than one way of speaking about this raising or exaltation of Jesus. And because I do, I'm not surprised that it should be variously understood today. What I cannot deny is that any person who today says Jesus is risen is giving voice to a creed. He's proclaiming that for him the possibility has been opened up of saying Jesus is alive, the whole Jesus. I think we have to be careful not to imagine that the resurrection of Jesus is a kind of happy ending to the rather sordid events of the previous week or a sort of consolation prize for Good Friday. For to think that way is to run the risk of its being no more than the figment of the wishful thinking of Peter and John and the rest. And most of all, I think we must avoid the pitfall of using the resurrection as a knockdown argument to stop all further argument, a knockdown argument in favour of faith. For, of course, if we do that, we end up by turning the raising of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead into a miracle to be believed in for itself. It becomes, then, an incontrovertible sign sealing the life of the one who consistently refused to give any sign other than his own words and behavior. It is called repentance. The plain fact is that the new resurrection life of Jesus could not be proved then and cannot be proved now. The apostles weren't satisfied of the truth of the resurrection simply by finding the tomb empty. There could have been other explanations for that, and they weren't long being offered. The apostles certainly were given an experience of the risen Christ different from ours in some way, but they didn't have some kind of knowledge at their disposal which you and I do not share. If they had had, then they were guilty of the grotesque effrontery of asking you and me after 20 centuries to walk by faith where they themselves walked by sight. But this isn't what they did. If you notice the way the Apostle Paul speaks of the resurrection of Christ, you'll see that he never mentions it apart from the cross and everything that went, led up to it. Indeed, for Paul, you could say the resurrection has no meaning apart from the cross. You could say that for him, the resurrection is the meaning of all that had gone before. It is, if you like, the sign, the risky possibility opened up for us by God that this way of death is God's way to life. And when they dared to believe that and to hope that, men like Paul willingly cast aside all their old self-sufficiency and all the signs of their own devising and dared to follow the way that had brought Jesus to the cross. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
reality of Easter began for me when, as a child, I looked out of the back window of our house and saw the newly washed clothes stiffening on the line. Suddenly a shaft of sun hit them, and there was an awakening. I knew then that a spirit was abroad in the gardens of the world. Christmas was a time of cards and candles and nostalgia. But I knew at Easter that matter was straining for the resurrection. In my formative years, Tenebrae held the imagination. It began with matins on Monday, Thursday, and ended with the first Vespers of Easter, which occurred during the Mass on Holy Saturday. Later I learned the Tenebrae was simply matins and loads, said as usual the evening before. But to me, it was revelation, and it was a beginning. Plain chant, the voice of the people, sang for me in its simplicity the urgent note of a risen people. I identified myself with David, and on Holy Saturday morning, during the blessing of the Paschal Candle, when the sin of Adam, which merited such and so great a saviour, was praised, I knew I was in the middle of the inheritance of an ancient wisdom, which recognised sin and the absolute necessity for a saviour. I wrote a poem about it at the time. When we are dead, no psalm of lamentation, David and the rest not dog our ears. You Trinity's strange and difficult equation make holy ghosts of all our mortal fears. Then suddenly I got afraid, thinking that lyricism and symbolism had blinded me to the crudity of the world around me. The fact that in the philosophy of life there were only two things, we are born and we die. People said to me, you are put under the clay and there's an end to it. And strangely enough, two problems worried me. The problem of the mind in decline and on a different plane. The pro problem of people not living in the Western world. I had been taught by Aquinas to believe that the mind was indivisible. Yet I had seen old age encroach so much on the tendrils of the brain that the spirit which I thought incomparable was dissolute and gone. The second problem was that we in the Western world are so accustomed to the reality of spring and the emergence of a new world of growing things that we do not recognise there are other nations and other tropics. Perhaps out of this we had created Easter. Then I came across a sentence of Macrobius who said, Omnia sacra incorrupta indivisa sunt. All things are sacred, uncorruptible and indivisible. And on reading the Bible, the magnificent words, God did not create death neither had he joined it. Doubt was resolved in rereading the gospel story of the resurrection. The first person to greet the risen Christ was Mary Magdalene, who had washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. No novelist that I know or ever read could have imagined this scene or created the words he said to her, Noli me tangere, do not touch me. And after many years of reading, 
I know, do not believe for one second that man alone could have written the discourse of Christ at the Last Supper, as described by John the Apostle. To me, Easter is a baptism of all the natural things of the world, of water and salt and light through an empty tomb. And when the Apostle saw Christ in the upper room, and Thomas, doubtful, thought he had seen a ghost, and put his hand on living flesh, he knew that Christ had risen. Christ had truly risen. For me, imagery and symbolism departed, and in this world of death and departure, I knew there could never again be loneliness. It is still the dark of night, and still so early in the world that the stars in the sky are without number, and each as bright as day. And if it could, the earth would sleep through Easter to the chanting of the psalms. It is still the dark of night, and still so early in the world that the square lies like an eternity between the corner and the crossroads and dawn and warmth are a thousand years away. The earth is still quite naked, has nothing to wear at night, while it rings the bells in response to the choir inside. And from Maundy Thursday till Holy Saturday, the water burrows into the river banks and spins the whirlpools. The forest is stripped bare, and at the season of Christ's Passion, its crowding pine trees stand like worshippers at a service, while in town, bunched together like a meeting, the naked trees gaze through the church gratings, awestruck. Their alarm is understandable. Gardens burst through fences, the earth's foundations quake. God is being buried. They see the light at the royal gate, the black pall and the row of candles, the tear-stained faces. 
Suddenly the procession advances on them with the shroud, and two birches at the gate have to make way. The procession walks round the churchyard and back, along the pavement's edge, bringing spring and spring talk from the street into the porch. And air with an aftertaste of communion bread, and the spring smells of charcoal. And March scatters snow to the crowd of cripples at the porch, as if a man had carried out the ark, opened it, and given away everything to the last shred. The singing lasts till dawn. Having wept their fill, the psalms and acts reach more softly into the empty, lamplit street. But at midnight beasts and men fall silent, hearing the spring rumour that as soon as the weather changes, death can be vanquished through the travail of the resurrection. Gloria in excelsis Deo!